may teach a little bit. I want to learn a little bit too. The Lord's been schooling me in some things, and it hurts. You know that? I had a grandfather that was kind of a, not, it wasn't hard. He was, a, he was a good man. He was a godly man. A different generation, though. But every once in a while, you know, my dad would tell the story of trips to the woodshed. You ever heard the term trips to the woodshed? Those of you in the South? Trip to the woodshed was not a fun trip. Man, it was, it almost was a horror movie. It involved a little bit of corporate punishment on us. I feel like sometimes the Lord has been taking me through some trips to the woodshed recently to correct just some bad thinking and some bad attitudes. So I'm thankful, though, that he is exactly right. He's been, he's been, he's been, he's been just showing his goodness to me by disciplining me and bringing me back. And I think last week was, I think it was a word for me. I was writing that out. I was journaling some, you know, and if you didn't hear last week, go back and listen to it on YouTube. Um, You know, well, I won't read all of it to you because some of it's for me, but (laughs) he said the word was for you. (laughs) That's what he said. Um, Sunday's word was for you, not them. So I guess y'all got the spillover of it. I think it was for all of us. Uh, So I want to give a little bit more of, I want to unpack a little bit more sort of of a part two of this, this idea of, 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 what barriers stand in the way of breakthrough? What barriers stand in the way of healing? What barriers just stand in the way of just more presence with the Lord? Um, things that we really can identify. We looked at three of those last week. One of them was pride. Second was apathy. And the third was sort of the fear of men or the, that desire for respectability. Those things can, can hinder um, what, what, we, what we really need uh, from the Lord. We saw that in, in Naaman's case, it was this, this tremendous amount of pride. He did not want to go low, did not want to humiliate himself and, and, and do what the Lord had told him to do. Um, and he made that choice to, to, to say no to pride, to kill pride, to crucify pride, and he received his healing. Um, I want to look at a couple more of those um, this morning. And again, like last week, we are going to be in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I like sort of looking at these snapshots from characters from, from both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, I think it just it sort of helps remind me that God is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changed. His heart, you know, thousands of years ago in, in these pages uh, in ancient history is the same heart that he had that was ministering through Jesus. And it's the same heart that he has now for you and I. So I want us to look at the Father's heart. I want to look at uh, just what the Spirit might be saying, things that may be standing in the way um, to break through. And there's a unique story in the Old Testament. It's one of my, one of my favorite heroes. Some of my favorite heroes are, are you know, just, just the ones that have done incredible things for God. I think of, I think of Moses and how the Bible says he was a friend of God. You know, and, and these incredible stories of, of not even the miracles, not even the parting of the Red Sea and the burning bush, the ones that really grip me the most are the, are the stories where he goes into the presence of God and he meets God face to face as a friend. That's just wild to me. What, is it, what, does, that even, what does that even mean? You know, and um, I think of, of, of stories like we, we taught on this two or three weeks ago about David's mighty men, these, these warriors who served the king and were, were bound with a blood oath to the king to, to put him on the throne and how they, you know, they, they hurt his heart 
um, and his desire, and they, they moved heaven and earth to make that happen. I love these stories about these people that just accomplish great things because of their devotion. But sometimes there's also heroes that are, 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 are not known for what they've done. And one of these is a, is a character. Actually, it's in David's story as well. Um, let's go and, and look at this character. I'll introduce him in a minute. But first, go to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. I want to tell you, though, I want to, I'll sort of tell you what these, second, these barriers are this week, and then we'll unpack the story. Last week was pride, apathy, and sort of this, this respectability, this fear of men. Um, this week, I sense the Lord is saying that there's some deeper internal um, barriers that can keep us of, of fear and shame. Not so much fear of, of fear of men, but really just fear of the fear of God, this, this distance or afraid of God and the shame that can really keep us from him. And I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more convinced that, that many people in the world, there's this separation from God. And, and it, it's, it's, it may not be because of pride or apathy, but it may be because we're just, we're ashamed. I don't want, I don't want to be close to the creator. I don't want him to read my mail. I don't want him to know my secrets. I don't want to come face to face with all, all the things that I've done. And I'm afraid of that kind of relationship. And I think that the Lord wants to address that and say, don't let, don't let fear and shame keep you from, from, from the Lord, from coming to the table, so to speak. So let's go to, uh, to, to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Um, this chapter describes the relationship of, of David, who has been anointed to be king. Saul is currently king. David has been anointed to be king. Uh, and Saul has been um, turning his rage against David out of jealousy. Saul tries to kill him in chapter 19. And in chapter 20, uh, David and Saul's son, a good friend of David, his name is Jonathan, are, are having these communications, you know, and, and David goes to Jonathan and says, you know, why, what have I done? Why is, your, why, is your, why is your dad against me? You know, and Jonathan has a heart um, for his friend David. Um, and they have some conversation here um, in chapter 20. And I want you to pay attention to what, what Jonathan says in 12. This is Saul's son, Jonathan, King Saul's son, Prince Jonathan. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. In other words, I'll, I'll get a feel, David. You know, you're in hiding. My dad's out to kill you. I'm, I'm going to go sort of evaluate the situation and see what's happening. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, speaking for himself. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know, insinuate in peace. In other words, I'm going to run interference for you, David. I'm going to go. I want to get a feel. If my dad's really in a bad way, I'll let you know so you can get away carefully. He says this, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So this is, this is Jonathan. He's royalty. He's the second in line to the throne. His father is the current king. And he's speaking, honestly, he's speaking to someone who is wanted by the king. But he's, 
he's, he's, it's almost like he has it backwards. He's looking at David and he's understanding in the spirit that David really is the one who belongs in his father's place. His father Saul doesn't belong on the throne, even though technically he's the king. He knows that, this, that the Lord has anointed his friend to be king. And he knows that, 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 that the tables are about to turn and the Lord will accomplish his purpose and remove his own father and thus remove Jonathan from his own right to the throne. He's going to install David on the throne. Jonathan knows this is going to happen. He knows that David is destined for greatness. And he says, David, you need to remember. Remember the favor that I'm showing to you. Remember our relationship. Remember our, our kindred hearts. Don't, don't allow judgment and wrath to come upon me. Don't allow it to come upon my family just because of what my father's doing. And it says, so Jonathan made a covenant with David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Beautiful story. Beautiful story of these two friends, these two mighty men of God, one of them destined for greatness. And the story would go on, of course, uh, David would indeed be crowned, would indeed be crowned king. Fast forward to 2 Samuel, a few chapters forward, Saul has, has died in battle. The Lord has brought judgment upon Saul. He's died in battle. And Jonathan as well has died in battle. David's friend, David weeps for them and mourns for them. In chapter 4, there's, a, there's, there's an interesting sort of one verse that stands out that's a little unusual. Ishbosheth, that's a tough name. Y'all looking for another name for your baby? Ishbosheth, that's a beautiful one. Come on. That's a good one, right? That ish, little ishy. Ishbosheth is the son of Saul, and Ishbosheth has now taken over the throne. David has been, been, is being promoted, and more and more people are coming to David's side. More and more people are surrounding David, saying, you're the rightful king, you're the true king, you belong on the throne. Ishbosheth is sort of now on the run, fearing for his life. And it says that his own people come and murder Ishbosheth. Let me read a little bit of this. Second uh, Samuel 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Baana and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Beerothite from the tribe of Benjamin. Y'all ignore all of these names. They're, they're not relevant right now. Beerath is considered part of Benjamin because on the people, etc., etc. Let's go on to verse 4. This is what matters here for our story. And this is all in parentheses, by the way, in my Bible. It's kind of strange, as if as if this has nothing to do with the story, but the, but, but, but the writer of this wants to plant this seed in our hearts. Chapter 4 said, Jonathan, son of Saul, remember him? He died in battle. Ishbosheth's brother, Jonathan, the one who had the right, the right to the throne, the firstborn. In the midst of all of this random sort of story about Ishbosheth being murdered and all these generals, a little bit of an insertion in chapter 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, the news of Jonathan and Saul's death. This little boy, Jonathan's son, was five. 
His, his nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. And then verse 5 picks up with the other things that were going on before. It's like this, this random verse out of nowhere. But the writer plants in our seed this story because he's going to come back to this later on. So let's go over a few chapters. Let's for, fast forward from chapter 4, go on to chapter 9. Ish-bosheth is murdered. David becomes king over Israel. He conquers Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines. They return the ark to Jerusalem. God establishes a promise with David. David is, is now fully, solely the sovereign king over the people of Israel. He has set up a capital. He has set up an army. His fame has gone around the world. He has no more enemies who are coming against him. The end of verse 8, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. But something is unsettled in David's heart. And verse 9 picks up the story that we were introduced to. Chapter 9, you're right. Thank you, Chuck. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You know, David is always, he's considered a a forerunner of Christ, a type of Christ even before Christ came along. We see in him this glimpses of the heart of God. David is even asking, who of my enemies can I still bless? Who can I show favor to? I think that's the heart of God right there. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul? Ziba, you are a servant in Saul's household. Many of his household have been killed. Saul was killed in battle. Jonathan was killed in battle. Many of his generals have been killed in battle. Many of his family were killed in battle. Is there anyone left of Saul's household to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba scratches his head. He says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar, by the way, means land of nothing. It was considered a ghetto, considered a, a, a no man's land, a wasteland, a place where you would not want to go. This is the perfect place for someone like Mephibosheth to go and be on the run, out of the way, living a life of relative seclusion and isolation. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amion. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. It was customary in the ancient world, it was customary for the, the, the sort of um, <laughs> the, the conquering king 
to thoroughly um, sort of do away with any other, uh, the other line of the other kings. We don't need a threat. We don't need, the, we don't need this, this, this second king and his family coming back up. So it's perfectly common in David's time for David to hunt down every remaining son, every remaining nephew or grandson or brother or, or, or first cousin once removed and hunt them down and kill them. You need to establish your dynasty, which means that the old dynasty has to be done away with. This is perfectly common. And undoubtedly, Mephibosheth would have known this, and he would have gone into hiding. He would have gone away, knowing, of course, that he is he's not wanted. He is not welcome. He comes from a line of, 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 of losers, the losers who, you know, the, the king who has been deposed and taken off the throne, killed in battle. Jonathan, his father, killed in battle as well. This new David comes along. And he knows, Mephibosheth knows, he's got, he's got no place, he's not welcome at all to come back into Israel. And he goes into hiding in a no, in a, in a, in a, in a no man's land, the land of nothing. Um, not only is so, not, he's, he's, he's hiding for his life, but he's also just physically disabled, dropped at his feet. As, his, as the nurse is running away, he's disabled both. Maybe he's got the, the, you know, the, the things under his arms to get around. He's lame in both feet. He really can't. He depends upon others. But he comes. King calls for him to come. It says this, David says, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I'm sure there's a lot of stuff happening in his mind, like why am I being brought here? The king has called for me. This is, this is the it. This is it, the end. You know, my life is, is virtually over. The king calls for me, comes in. And now the king is, 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 is saying these words to me that I can't even imagine what they mean. Is this sort of manipulation? Is this a joke? Is he going to bring me in and humiliate me and only to cut me down? What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And the heart of the king comes out. The king summons Ziba, Saul's steward, and says to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and to his family. You and your sons, speaking to the servant, you, Ziba, listen to me, listen to me, you and all of your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for David says, listen, this is the son of my closest friend. He's not a dead dog. He's royalty. It says it here. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord, whatever my Lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. I think this is in here for, for several reasons. One, it, it's, it reflects David's character as a leader and as a king. Incredible compassion, incredible mercy, incredible forgiveness. But I think this is also in here as, as a picture of how the Lord wants to bring dead dogs to his royal table. And fear makes us want to run away from God. 
Fear wants to make us run when the king is saying, no, come on in. Come on in. And Mephibosheth then, he's, he's a hero, and he does absolutely nothing. What does he possibly do? What does he possibly offer? Nothing. He's not a mighty warrior. He doesn't storm the gates. He doesn't fight on behalf of God's people. He doesn't ascend into the clouds like Moses does and hear the voice of God. He doesn't go and speak to Pharaoh. He doesn't take up the, the, the ox goad and, and, and like Shamgar and, and judges and, and, and defeat God's enemies. Doesn't do any of these things. He is nothing but a recipient of grace. That's all it is. So keep that in your mind. Fear makes us run when the king bids us come. Let's flip over to the New Testament. I think the same heart and the same spirit is here. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Let me pause there right there. There's actually two, two different stories in the Gospels that, that talk about um, a woman coming in with a jar of oil and, and ministering to Jesus. Um, the other Gospels record this happening in Bethany, and the woman was Mary of Bethany who was anointing Jesus' feet. This is not the same person. This is not the same account. This is a different account of a different woman. We don't know her name. We know her reputation, which is even worse. <laughs> you know, so in, in this story, Jesus has been invited by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and we know his name is Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's the one who has been entrusted with keeping God's law, with establishing order, with, 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 with promoting the virtue of the covenant law of God. And he is, we, you know, we're not really sure why. You know, sometimes the Pharisees would go head to head with Jesus, but we know that this man invites Jesus to come to dinner. And it was common in that time, whenever you would have a rabbi into your house, to leave the doors open and the windows open. Honestly, because the rabbi will undoubtedly, after he's eating, the, the rabbi will undoubtedly begin to teach the people in the home. And it's, it, it was a courtesy to leave the doors open so that other people in, in, in the community, in the neighborhood could come and stand outside and look through the door, look through the window. They weren't invited all the way in. You, you know, look, it's not a place at the table for you, but you can't come and hear the wisdom from the rabbi. So the doors were left open. The windows were left open. This, uh, Jesus was invited there. He goes to the Pharisee's house. He relies at the table. There's a woman in the town who lived a sinful life. The Bible doesn't tell us what she did. We can imagine, and there's a good chance that these were probably sexual sins, her reputation ahead of her. She was known to be someone that was sort of, you know, uh, just not at all the kind that, that, that was honoring God. She wouldn't, she wouldn't be caught dead in synagogue. She wouldn't be caught dead with the likes of, of people like Jesus. She learned that Jesus was eating at, at the Pharisee's house. Look at this. I want you, to, I want you to, to, to look at this kind of faith so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
I want to unpack more of this at some point, but I can't today because there's so much to this. She has every reason to be ashamed. In her culture and in her community, she is a shameful woman. She has every reason to stay as far away from this house as possible. But the opposite happens. Instead of shame driving her away, shame is going to motivate her to press into the one thing for some reason that she knows that she needs. I need to see this Jesus. She's likely heard stories about him. She's likely heard accounts of his grace and his love and his power to heal people. She's likely sort of heard the rumors going around that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And she takes it upon herself to do something that's unthinkable. She gathers a box made of alabaster. full of perfume, and she makes her way into the house. The house is likely crowded, people are around, people talking, bustling, servants coming, delivering food. You know, Simon the Pharisee is at his seat of honor, and next to him at the seat of honor is this rabbi Jesus, you know, and Jesus is eating with them, and they're all talking, and nobody, maybe nobody notices her as she slips in. You know, there's other people there, and maybe they think that she was invited. She comes in, and it says this, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And the atmosphere just really changes in that moment. This is, this is embarrassing. Have you ever had those? Have you ever had those, like, perp, those, um, those kind of perfect, you know, dinner parties planned at your house. You know, everything is just right. You got the food, you got the music on. And like sometimes your kid just comes in and just begins to have this total meltdown, you know, you're like, or you're on the phone, you're on a Zoom and your kid just has this total meltdown and just, just screaming, just losing their minds. None of you have ever had that happen. I've had that happen. You know, it's just like, okay, this really, really got awkward all of a sudden. This is a real awkward moment here in Luke chapter 7. The woman is crossing. She is just, she's not, being, she's not being inappropriate. She begins to cry. She begins to weep. She begins to love and just sob out loud and the tears are just falling off. And she's just like, somebody please help her, get her out of the way. But nobody dares touch her. She's at the feet of Jesus. They're waiting for Jesus to rebuke her. They're all waiting for Jesus to say something to her, but she just continues to weep and the tears sort of fall off. And she, she wipes them on his feet. And she reaches over and she gets out her box and opens it up and begins to pour the oil and the perfume just goes through the air. And everyone in the room is bothered. Everyone in the room is uncomfortable except Jesus. He doesn't seem phased by this at all. So now it gets really awkward though, but not for the woman. <laughs> when the Pharisee who had invited him, his name is Simon, he said to himself, he's thinking this in his mind, so he's watching this. He, Jesus is here, place of honor. I'm honored because Jesus is in my home. Look at me, I got the most famous rabbi in the town to come and have dinner with me. Thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, as everybody claims he is, he would know the kind of the kind of woman that's touching him right now. Doesn't he know what she's done? Doesn't he know where those hands have been? Doesn't he know where that mouth has been? Doesn't he know her reputation? 
Doesn't he know who she is? Surely he's got, if he really is a prophet, he would know what's happening here. I'm so embarrassed for Jesus, thinks Simon to himself. And then verse 40 says, Jesus answered him. Simon thinks if Jesus were a prophet, isn't that ironic? And Jesus, being a prophet, answers a question that Simon didn't even ask aloud. That's a good idea, Simon. Simon looks around embarrassed. What are you talking about? He doesn't say that. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon is like, oh, finally, he noticed. He's waiting. He's waiting for this woman to get raked over the coals as she deserves to be. How dare you? How dare you interrupt my dinner party with your salacious behavior? Go ahead, Jesus. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Denarii was about a day's wage, so it's a lot of money. One of them owed him 500 denarii. The other owed him 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so this guy forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? Oh. It's one of those trick questions that Jesus always asks. Great. I know what the right answer is, so I better say it. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. What else am I going to say? You've judged correctly, Jesus said. He turns to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman right here? This, this woman right here, this sobbing mess with rouge all over her face, mascara running all over her cheeks, hair a big mess making a scene in front of everybody. You see her right here? I came into your house, Simon. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It's courtesy, Simon, when a guest comes into your home to wash the dust off of their feet. You didn't do that. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't greet me with a kiss. That's a common courtesy, Simon. You didn't do that. But this woman has not stopped smothering my feet with kisses. Tell me, Simon, who loves me more? You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Tell me, Simon, who loves me more? You, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then he turns to the woman. He says this. He says, your sins are forgiven. Man, everybody knows what her sins are. But in a moment, he says, all of those are forgiven. No one can hold them against you any longer. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shame has such a powerful potential from keeping us from the presence of the Lord. It does. It can. Shame for what we've done in the past, the decisions that we made in the past, the words that we said in the past. 
shame about what we've not done, what we failed to do, the kind of person we failed to be, the kind of father that I failed to be, the kind of husband that I failed to be. Shame that we don't have enough, that we don't look enough the right way, I don't make enough money, I don't drive the right car, I'm embarrassed about this. Shame has such incredible potential from keeping us from the table. But here's, here's the truth in the kingdom. Your fear and your shame qualify you for a place at the table. They don't keep you from a place at the table. They actually qualify you for a place at the table. It's almost like, it's almost like God has this great big table, you know, full of all of these chairs and places and beautiful place settings, and he's got a place reserved for, you know, for, for just whoever else. But there's a special place that he has reserved. There's a little card on it. And the little card says, Reserved for the afraid and for the shameful. And he says, no, no, that, you, you can't sit there. You, you're, you're not ashamed enough to sit here. This is a special place right by me. You're, you, don't have enough, you don't have enough fear and shame. You're still a little, you're still a little bit full of, a little, still a little bit full of your, you, you are not so broken. This is, this is a seat that's reserved for those who have shame and fear. You know, I know that. I know that from Matthew 5. Matthew 5, these, 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 these words that Jesus gives, you know, talks about that. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. You know, blessed means, blessed means fortunate. We're for, you, you who are crippled by shame and fear, I have such good news for you. There's a place at the table. And at the table, all of that is taken away. All of that shame, all of that fear, all of that old, all the brokenness is just removed and it's wiped out and you can sit right next to the king. Come on, that's good news. Enemy's a liar. Enemy's a liar, you know? All those lies about shame, about what we've done, what we've not done, not enough, not good enough. That's just lies. That's not truth. God wants to take us from great shame to great love. I love what he says. He says, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Your faith has saved you. We have peace. All right. Music, music people, come on up. Jim, Lydia, you guys come on up here. I want to I pray over us. I want to ask just for... Um, I want the Lord to lift some of this off. Those of us that have fear and fear and shame. Because I can't help but look at these stories throughout the scripture. These are just two of many. I feel like the Lord is saying that if you don't feel like you have a place at the table, let me speak truth to you. Let me release truth to you. Can we stand together, church? Would you stand with me?
Hey, cl let's close our eyes together. I want us to do this. If there's a voice of shame and fear in your heart, I want to ask the Lord just to, to minister to you and speak to you. I want you to receive this. I want you to receive the words of the Lord. If fear or shame has kept you from pressing in, the Lord wants to free you of that. He wants to speak truth to you. He wants to call you to a table. He's made a place for you. He's reserved a place for you. I'm just going to repeat the words of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Whatever you've done in the past, when it's taken to the cross, it's forgiven. And you can ask God right now what he thinks about it. You know what he's going to say to you? He's going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I've forgotten that. He remembers our sins no more. He casts them as far as from the east is to the west. God is not waiting with indictment papers in his hand for you. He's waiting with open arms and an open table. I want you to receive that, church. I want you to receive that. Receive the forgiveness. Say, yes, Lord, let's receive your forgiveness. I say no to shame, and I say yes to love. The enemy says that you're a dead dog. That's not what God is saying. Father says you're royalty. You're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High. Minister grace, Lord, in this season to your church. Father, we just lay down everything, Lord, that the enemy wants to come and to condemn us with again. The shame of the past, even the shame of the present, the fear, Lord, of the future. We lay it down. And we take a place at your table. You prepare a feast for us, Lord. We take a place at your table. And we receive your words when you say that our sins are forgiven. We receive those right now. We receive the peace, Lord, that you give to us. We receive it right now. We agree, Lord, in faith that shame and fear, pride and apathy and respectability, Lord, they no longer have a place. They no longer have authority in our life.